0: Hey, Bizarro's. Just a heads up that this episode will include graphic description of violent acts against women. We'll be discussing the terrible crimes of the Whitechapel killer, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper. So if hearing about these unimaginable acts could cause you anxiety, distress, or trigger you in any way, this may not be the episode for you. We will look forward to you hearing our next episode. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Bizarro Aficionado. Please, just try and relax. You will only hurt worse if you resist. welcome to season four episode two i'm gaz morgan and welcome to bizarro aficionado how's everyone doing out there huh crazy times i'm really sick of winter it's uh it's been pretty cold here in maryland but i'm not going to complain a lot uh, a lot worse up north than down here but it's been a weird winter it seemed like i was too north for more snow and too south for more snow and i don't know it's really, really weird but we got a great show for you tonight and uh yeah th- this one could be a tough one like the uh, the warning in the beginning said we're going to talk about some pretty graphic things here but when you hear the name jack the ripper who do you picture some faceless cloaked monster in the dark with a surgeon's blade killing sex workers in victorian london in 1888 but what of his victims What comes to mind beside the grisly crime scene and post-mortem photos of the likes of Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly? Nothing, huh? Just lost victims of not only the sex trade, but of time itself. But what if I were to tell you that their lives are part of the entire narrative? What if I were to tell you they had husbands and children and lives before and during the time they walked the streets of Whitechapel? What if I were to tell you that Polly Nichols may not have even been the first victim of the Whitechapel killer? Her name was Martha Tabram. And what if I were to tell you that Scotland Yard not only knew full well who the killer was, but had a good reason to leave the truth hidden in the Whitechapel darkness? And no, it has nothing to do with the Crown. In this episode, we welcome back Josh Hitchens to discuss his research and book, The Police Will Not Protect Them?, And his research into Whitechapel victims' lives and the prevailing theory of who the killer was, and what was his fate. So let me shut up, and uh, I'll see you on the other side, and we'll sit down with Josh and hear what he has to say. See you in a bit. Hey, Bizarro's. Welcome back. In this episode, we welcome back Josh Hitchens to discuss his book, The Police Will Not Protect Them, Whitechapel's Women and Jack the Ripper, and his research into the Whitechapel victims' lives, the prevailing theory of who the killer may be, and what was his fate. So this is exciting. Josh,
1: welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here again.
0: I know. This is uh, since you first told me and sent me the book, and I I read it the first time, I, I think, in one day. (laughs) <laughs> it just sucked me in it was so good and there's there's stuff in there i hadn't heard before and i certainly don't claim to be a uh, a ripper aficionado but uh yeah he brought up a lot of neat things especially about the lives of the victims themselves which we hear too little of yes mm, for sure and uh one of the things i definitely you know we want to start at the beginning of course so it's the the autumn of terror it's 1888 but this is what we always get in every movie. It's foggy. It's wet. There's some guy in a top hat and a cape carrying a doctor bag hunting down prostitutes. And that's pretty much all we know about them other than the name. Is even any of that probably right?
1: I mean, some of it. I mean, I, I think we talk a lot about the atmosphere of Whitechapel and what it was like in terms of Victorian London and just. The immensity of the poverty that existed in that time. I mean, I've always been really fascinated with the Victorian era in particular because of that contrast, you know, because when we think of Victorian England, especially, we think, oh, it's the height of the empire. There's immense wealth and success. But while you have that going on, you also have poverty on a scale much worse than is we're experiencing it today in the United States, for right. example, you know, at, at the time, 36% of the people who lived in the East end were in abject poverty. And that's a huge, huge percentage.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so like the dichotomy of that has always really fascinated me. And, I, you know, from the time I was very young, I was always very interested in unsolved mysteries and, and true crime and things like that. And of course, Jack the Ripper is kind of the be, you know the beginning of what we now think of as a modern serial killer, and there are innumerable books and documentaries out there, you know, hypothesizing of who this who this person was that sure. a lot of these women, you know. But there wasn't a, there there are very few books or documentaries out there that really lead with the lead with the lives of the women right. who were prematurely killed by this person. And this book originally started as a series on my podcast, Going Dark Theater, which is mm-hmm. about finding the humanity behind the horror. And I had initially thought that, okay, I'll do like a two a part episode on, on the, on the Whitechapel murders. Right. I was calling the series, the tale of the Whitechapel women. But as I started diving into the research, I was just, astonished at the amount of historical documentation that exists about who these women were you really can if you look you can get to know them and know their stories you know more than just being victims of the serial killer who sure. will never know who he was and it ended up being a, a series of six episodes it grew way beyond what i had initially planned because i i just found myself so emotionally invested in it. Oh, um,
0: yeah. And just you know. from reading the book, I you, you find that they had tortured lives, you know, and and things went bad for a lot of them that brought them to Whitechapel. But they had these rich lives and they weren't just some nameless sex worker in a slum in London. These they had families. You know, they, you know, some were estranged, et cetera, but they had families. There were children. There were horrendous hardships that went into making mm-hmm. these people who they were and put them where they were. Yeah. Mhm. And you, you you spell out in the book um, kind of the economics of the era, area just by talking how money was made up back then. And it was divided into pounds, shilling, and pence. Mm -hmm. and 20 shillings made up one pound 12 pence made up one shilling so it took 240 pence to make up only one pound and sex workers at the time you would put um would charge three pence per client three pence was the price of one large glass of gin which was the cheapest liquor at any pub and they were open 24 hours a day Mm -hmm. so that's when you're already fighting as an alcoholic or with addictions and it's right there all the time, that's, that's tough.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's the thing that all all of these women really did share and that so many of the women, you know, who were living in poverty in Whitechapel shared and men too, of course, but is out is alcoholism, you know, and when you dive into their lives and the circumstances that, just to keep them living from surviving just barely day to day. It, it's not surprising that they would turn to alcohol to try and get away from that, even just oh, for sure. a while, you know?
0: Yeah. It's like you had put in another section you had put is, does anything to help the dull, immense emotional and psychological pain that they had day to day and anything to cut out you know, the stink of the slum and the starvation and the death. And this, this wasn't like just driving down a not so good part of town. This was, this was hardship, serious hardship in this community.
1: Mm -hmm. But yet,
0: I, I think you talk about how murder was, was rare. That kind of severe crime was rare.
1: Yeah. And that was some, that was a fact I found that that did surprise me, you know, because you think with, with, uh, the East End and in particular the neighborhood of Whitechapel as rough and as bleak as it was, you know, like um, uh, Jack London wrote about Whitechapel in 1902 and he called it the abyss, you know, and there are so many descriptions of it. Um, And there are so many photographs, too, which I, I put in the book that are from the period where you can really see just the depth of the squalor you know that that these people were living in at the time um and i also found it fascinating to learn in my research that the word unemployment was coined in
0: 1888 oh wow yeah i do remember Um, you saying that that's right
1: yeah you know so there's so there's so much that even though this this was you know 1888 in another century there's so much that we're still struggling with you know Sure. As human beings now, um, a lot has not changed, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and it in many places, I feel like we're going backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I constantly am saying to friends, I'm like, this is like the modern dark ages. Hmm. A frowning on intellectualism, a frowning on, on any kind of cultural change other than what they deem the norm. You know, it's just we're going backwards. I, I it's just I don't get it. I I don't understand what's wrong with people.
1: It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a scary time to be living through. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. But I, like I said, I'm, I'm not a big ripper guy. I've, you know, kind of kept up on it, but I always knew if I went to these sites, uh, like Ripper Anna and some of those Mm. that I would, I would never go back to work. I would just be (laughs) sucked down this forever rabbit hole and, Came out, so I had heard that there were other possible uh, victims that could have been mm-hmm. attributed, but Martha Tabram, mm-hmm. she was one that I don't remember hearing about, and it seems pretty, you know, convincing, you know, it, the way you have written it, that she she would have to be the first.
1: I think so, and and of course I I am I am by far from you know the first person to th- to think that and. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I believe it and included it in the book is that the three primary investigating officers on the Whitechapel murders case did think that Martha Tabram was one of the victims. Um, There was one murder uh, before her of a woman named Emma Smith um, Mm. that was also included in that file. Um, but she she was attacked by she said a gang a gang of several men um, who assaulted her and she ended up dying in the hospital of her injuries. Um, oh yes yes yeah so that's that was sort of the fir- the first thing that that started. Um, but Martha Ta- Martha Tabram just the circumstances of her of her death um, the fact that like her her unlike the victims following her, her you know not not to get too gory, but I don't think hmm. I don't think we can avoid it. Um you know, like her throat wasn't cut, but she'd been stabbed in her abdomen and in her genitals thirty nine times. Yeah, that's crazy. Which yeah, like that is not normal. Like, no. if you're if you're going to like rob somebody or or just or just you know kill someone you yeah. know for whatever reason like you're not going to stab them 39 times.
0: No, that this, um, this is a crime of rage.
1: Yeah, that there's there's deep rage going yeah. on there. Um and that you know there you as you look at the way the killings progressed in terms of what the killer did to the bodies of these women, right. you really can see i i think, you know, a serial killer learning from, from victim to victim. And, oh, for and, sure. And to go back to what you said a few minutes ago, um, yeah, murder surprisingly was not common in Whitechapel. You'd think it would be, you know, with yeah. with a place, you know, such as it was. But in 1887, there were six murders in the entire year. Wow. And so when this sequence of crimes started in 1888, the fact that you had you know, six women who were killed within a four month period, it may, it really makes you understand why this caught so much attention and what, why people were so frightened, you know, they call it the oh, yeah. Terror for that reason, you know, because they had never seen anything like this
0: before, mm-hmm.
1: you know, the people, the police had no idea what to do with something like this. Um, yeah and like like I write like he kind of, whoever this person was he kind of came along in a perfect place in a perfect time to do what he did you know because fingerprinting is right. a few years away you know forensics isn't really a thing um like DNA evidence obviously is a long 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 way away um so there the law enforcement just had never seen anything like this and had yeah. no idea how to go about stopping it
0: so it really changed you know, policing as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's cra- It's crazy the impact that it has and still has. Yes, you know, going forward, that there's it's become not only kind of I hate to say a, this romantic thing, but this gothic kind of dark, creepy thing. But every, who doesn't want to look up stuff about the Yeah, you know, I, I have mm-hmm. friends that don't like. Horror movies, they don't like, you know, looking in the serial killers, but if something about the Ripper comes up, that they have to listen to. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. something there that calls us, whether it's just this, who is it? We don't like not knowing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And you, uh, later, uh, you have some pretty good, uh, suggestions of who it might be and even a f- newer one. Mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll definitely get to those but let's uh let's talk about martha's life so now yeah I don't think they know quite as much about martha as some of the others but she still has an interesting background mm-hmm.
1: yeah we don't we don't know as much about martha taperman as we do about many of the women who were killed after her but we do we do know a fair amount um she was born as martha white on may 10th 1849 um, her parents uh, separated in 1865 when Martha was 16 years old. Her father died not long after that. Uh, and she married a man named Henry Tabram on Christmas Day in 1869. And they had two children, Frederick and Charles. And it was after uh, the birth of their children that their marriage kind of started to fracture. Mm-hmm. Um Martha Tabram began drinking uh, and, you know, became an alcoholic, you know, took over more and more of her life. Uh, And finally, her husband, her husband basically kicked her out of the house um, Mm. and took and she took her children with her. And her husband, yeah, uh, her husband initially did give her a weekly allowance of twelve shillings, which was, as you went over the, right, you know, the um breakdown of the money, which so twelve shillings a week, yeah, (laughs) is you know, like you can do some stuff with that, Um, yeah. uh, and she, uh, after a couple years, like again, like could not stop drinking. Um, And so finally, her husband reduced her allowance to uh, two shillings and sixpence, um, which is a huge, huge reduction. Um, But Martha did fall, did eventually fall in love again, um, as most of these these women did um, after their first marriages or relationships failed. They did find love again. Uh, And Martha fell in love with a man named William Turner. uh, And when her husband found out that Martha um was in a relationship with someone else he stopped giving her any money mm. um and he, the last time he saw her was eight, 18 months before she died he ran into her on Whitechapel Road and he said she was almost too drunk to stand up Oh man um and it was during this time uh As far as far as we are able to know that Martha, because all the financial assistance stopped, that's when she turned to sex work Mm -hmm. when she had to um, to survive. And remember, she still had two young children at this time.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. Um,
1: And one of my I think one of the most poignant stories about her and like if when you look at the lives of all these women, there are so many details like this one that just, it it, just the humanity of it moves me so much that, uh, three weeks before she died, um, she had been left by her boyfriend, uh, William Turner. She was staying at a lodging house and she finally didn't have money to pay the rent. So the landlord kicked her out. Um, and but after she was kicked out, she came back to the lodging house in the middle of the night and put the key to her room back on the nightstand where her yeah. landlord finded it. Um, and, like, e- that's what I mean when I say, like, you know, even though we don't know that much about Martha Tabram, like, just knowing that little snapshot, I think is right. much about the woman that she, she was that even even at her lowest like she still she still had dignity right you know right and wanted to do the right thing um and uh after that um soon after that we we don't really know what happened to Martha Tabram's two children um yeah. they were they vanished from the historical records that survive mm. um you know so it's not known what became of them oh my gosh uh, yeah uh so that's a that, that's a little bit about her um leading up leading up to her murder uh and she uh like most of the victims of the Whitechapel murderer aka jack the ripper uh was murdered on a bank holiday uh so, yeah i didn't know they, that either yeah um so which means that you know it's like a, th- a three day weekend like we would have right. for like independence day or whatever um, which is one of the things that you know a huge a huge number of historians and theorists have latched on to is that these murder that suggests that whoever this killer was that he was someone who what who did have some kind of active employment right and that he and that on is on this day off when he would have an extended amount of time a 3-day a 3-day weekend that is when he took the lives of these women.
0: Right. Oh my god. Yeah, that's that's, that's a weird part that I had never learned before either.
1: Mm-hmm. So that, that
0: really then you you look at ones where it's like oh it had to be the prince or it had to be just <laughs> like I don't think he had to wait for a day off, you know, he could pretty much go whenever he wanted. So I think that Mm-hmm. pretty good to write him out. I mean, even James Maybrick, you know, he was a doctor, I think, wasn't he? Or a surgeon?
1: Yes, I think so, if I remember and it correctly.
0: And it's just like, I, I think he could make his own hours to, you know, do his deeds if he had to. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to some of these others who were working class and lived in the area, then uh, Martha, as the first one, was right in um, George, is it George Square? George... Uh,
1: uh, George Yard.
0: George Yard. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, is that where uh, her board, her boarding house was right there, right?
1: Uh, it was nearby. nearby. She okay. didn't, she did not live there. Um, but she, she was found, she was found by someone who did live there. So the, the way the time, the way the timeline goes mm-hmm. with her just briefly uh, is that so. A uh, woman who lived at George Yard, and George Yard is is a is a building, basically like mm. uh, you know a tenement. A uh, woman named Elizabeth Mahoney who lived there um, came came home, uh, went up the, went up the staircase, which was totally unlit, pitch black dark. Uh, she came back at 1:55 a.m. Uh, there was nothing on the staircase. She didn't notice anything. At two o'clock, uh, a policeman Uh, named Thomas Barrett noticed a man uh, standing out in the street outside of George yard. And the policeman asked this man, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Just standing around here at two o'clock in the morning. And this man um, who the policeman said looked like he was a soldier. um, The man said he was waiting for a mate who had gone with a girl is what he said. Uh, And the policeman went on his way. Then at uh, hour and a half later at three 30, uh, another person who lived in George Yard, who, a cab driver, returned home. He was climbing the staircase, and he noticed that there was someone lying on the first floor landing. And he didn't think really anything of it because he said it was very common for you <laughs> right. know, people who didn't have anywhere else to go or people who had had a lot to drink to just sort of pass, pass out on the stairs, who so just walked yeah. up the stairs, you know, went to bed. And it wasn't until uh, 4.50 a.m. when another person living in the building came down the stairs to go to work. And by now, the sun was coming up. And that is when he saw that Martha Tabram was there and that she, mm. she was lying in a pool of blood and that she was dead.
0: Goodness gracious. And and so it begins. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was, again, it brutalized. It just, this wasn't just... His first one, you know, like you said, what was it, thirty-nine times? Yes, mm-hmm. I believe. And again, we don't have to go into, you know, every bit of it. I did put a uh, bit of a trigger warning in the intro, just yeah. so people know that we'll be talking about violence against women and mm-hmm. some of these horrible things. But it's all out there, and you can go. Read mm-hmm. it. Same with the, you know, the the autopsy pictures and the crime scene photos. They're out there. You can yes. Google them and find them. But uh yeah,
1: and I and I in in the book put a content warning at the beginning too. Yeah, like the exact same thing. You know, but it, you know, that I but the it's not to be like grotesque or to be sensationalist. Sure. It's you know, I it's just to tell the truth. And so with the violence, like. I don't, I don't write it as if it's fiction, you right. know, like I just, I literally just took the, the autopsy reports, you know, word for word verbatim, yeah. um, because that's, enough. Um, that's it is, yeah. enough. um, and in the book, there are no, there are no post-mortem photographs, um, right? you know, I did because that's not like what you it's said, they're, they're out there yeah. and that's what people always focus on. And I yeah. wanted to focus on them the life. Alive. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Hundred percent. So now it goes let's see, it's August. So it goes a little bit is it a little bit later in August then that we reach Marianne Polly Nichols?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm hmm. Yeah, and go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, her life is
0: quite the chaos.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um so talking about her, um, she was born Marianne Walker, um, went by the nickname of Polly later in her life. She was born on August 26, 1845. Uh, she got married to William Nichols when she was 18 years old, and they had five children. Um, and again, like Martha Tabram, after the birth of their last child, uh, Henry, um uh, Marianne Nichols began began drinking and mm-hmm. became an alcoholic. But Marianne's father said uh, after her death that the reason why her marriage had broken up was that Mary and found out that her husband had an affair with uh, a woman a nurse who had helped oh, wow. Mary during her last pregnancy, which William Nichols completely denied, he was like, that's, that's not in these words. Yeah. But he was like, that, that's ridiculous. She was the bad one. She's the one who left me alone to care for all these children by myself. Right. But, you know, so it's sort of like he said, he said. Uh, sure. But it's interesting that um, Marianne's eldest son, who is Edward, at her funeral refused to speak to his father. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know. Yeah. Not a happy home life, obviously. No. Um and again, uh like Martha Tabram, William Nichols paid Marianne uh, a weekly allowance to mm-hmm. help support her, but he stopped doing that in eighteen eighty-two when he discovered that she um had started doing sex work. Mm-hmm. And Marianne Nichols spent the last years of her life, you know, basically from eighteen from eighteen eighty-two almost till the end. Um, in and out of different workhouses in the East end. And, you know, if folks remember, like, to give you an idea of what, like, what the workhouse meant in the Victorian era, like, because in A Christmas Carol, like, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge said, like, and the workhouses, are they still in operation? Right. You know, and they say, like, many can't go there. Many would rather die. And Scrooge said, well, if they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus plus population. population. That's right. And and that Dickens, I mean, because Dickens is writing, you know, in in this time period earlier than the Whitechapel murders, but the workhouse was really seen by many as sort of the final humiliation, you know, the final acknowledgement that you were absolutely incapable of caring for yourself. You know, right. you went to the workhouse; it was all it, it was almost almost like being in prison in a way, mm. like you. Gave away your personal belongings. You spent your days doing these mindless, physically hard tasks, like men would just break up piles of rocks for no reason. Oh, um, women and children would pick oakum with their fingers, which you know, is extremely painful.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, all in exchange for just a, pl- a place to sleep. Uh, wow. And there were many people who, in this era, who went, went faced with you know, that the workhouse was the only place left that they, they would commit suicide um, rather than go. Um, The thing that makes one of the things that makes Marianne Nichols, I think really heartbreaking is that she got out of the workhouse cycle. um, And that in, in May of 1888, like Mm -hmm. just a few months before she died, um, before she was killed, rather, um, she got out of the workhouse and she took a position as a domestic servant. Um, and she actually wrote a letter to her father. Um, and it, it, it's very brief. Do you mind if I just read it real? Oh quick? no, that'd be great. Yeah, I say it's it's very brief. Again, like this is one of those snapshots. Like, and it yeah. is rare with these women that we have some some of their own writing, their own words. Yeah,
0: their own voice.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, Ann Polly Nichols wrote her father. She said, I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It is a grand place inside with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotlers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people, and I have not, not too much to do. I hope you're all right and the boy has work. So goodbye for the present from yours truly, Polly. Answer soon, please, and let me know how you are. So you have her in this moment, you know, yeah. after all these long years of alcoholism and being in and out of workhouses, finally having a respectable job with nice with nice people in a good environment, like a way out. Um, and she ended tra- tragically uh, after two months. Uh, she left um, because she stole
0: oh.
1: uh, from her employers, and again, we don't know what led to that. Did she, right. did she start drinking again? We don't know. Um, but you know, she had that that mo that moment. You know, in May of 1888, when like things, things were... might have been okay. Yeah. Um, and then all like. August 30th, 1888, she's dead.
0: Right. Um,
1: and that, and that's actually going back to what you were saying um, at the beginning with sort of, you know, what we think of when we think of Jack the Ripper and Whitechapel, we think of like, you know, the fog and the rain and all, and right. all that stuff. Um, but it's actually, oh, it was only on the night that uh, Marianne Nichols was murdered that it was raining. Um, uh-huh. That was the only one. Uh, and what's really eerie about that night and something that I found in my research that I didn't know is that on that night, um, two huge fires had broken out on the docks. So people like hundreds and hundreds of residents of Whitechapel went to the docks to watch this fire because that was that's entertainment. right. Um, and that people wrote that the sky over Whitechapel because of the fire, the sky was red. Oh, wow. Um, which
0: that's ominous. Yeah,
1: like, and that you know, that's one of those things that like you can't make up.
0: No, no.
1: Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, And the last time that she was seen alive was at 2:30 a.m. on, which is now August 31st, 1888, and she met one of her roommates, um, who was also a sex worker named Emily Holland. And mm-hmm. um, Holland said that Polly Nichols was drunk, she was staggering, sort of against a wall. they talked for a while, and then Polly Nichols said, "I've had my dos money three times today and spent it. It won't be long before I'm back." And then she walked down Whitechapel Road, and that was the last time anyone saw her alive, um, and the last known words hmm. that someone heard her speak.
0: Now the the DOS money because there were DOS houses. How mm-hmm. how are they different from like lodging or boarding homes?
1: Yeah, so so a DOS house like is base is basic, basically like a couple steps down from a hostel. Like to ah, to, okay. put it, to put in our mo- in modern terminology, right? Um, you know, and they're called DOS house, They're also called rookeries. Um, oh, okay, yes, named uh, named after. Rooks or crows because crow, crows like um, swarm together in trees, like mm-hmm. a lot a lot of them in a very, very small space. So that's why they were called rookeries. And in a rookery or DOS house for four pence, you could purchase a bed for the night, which you usually shared with someone else. If you mm-hmm. paid more, you could have the bed to yourself. Sometimes you paid your four pence for a space on the floor um, but if you couldn't afford that, if you didn't even have the four pence uh, for two pence, uh, you could sleep standing up against the wall um, with a rope pulled across oh your body so you wouldn't fall down.
0: I think I did. Uh, eat, that's right.
1: Yeah. Um, so that, <laughs> so that's what that. Can you, I
0: can't even imagine.
1: Like. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It does. But, seem yeah, unimaginable. You
0: drink enough. It's comfy enough, I guess. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's another and example. Better, and better of just, than
1: being on the street, you oh, know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then the it, Polly was a was originally I think it was around three forty AM. She was found by a man named Charles Cross, who mm-hmm. had just entered Bucks Row. Yes. Now we'll yeah. we'll we'll talk about Charles Cross a little later on, but how did he come into the story?
1: Yeah, uh Interesting. And when I when I was reading the the book again, you know, in preparation for for this interview, because I hadn't, you know, looked at it in a in a right. bit, like this this is one thing that sort of struck me in a way that it hadn't ever struck me before, and that so B- Bucks Row um, is a street that actually is pretty identical now in the 21st century uh, as it was in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a, it's like a straight street with buildings on either sides. And there's no like little exits as you're going down the street, you know, right. Like it's either end of the street. That's, that's how you can get out. Um, and remember that in this era, everyone's wearing hard shol- sold shoes, right? Like sure. rubber shoes don't exist yet. So there's no such thing as wearing shoes and being quiet, right. you know, you can hear people coming or running away um, if they're wearing shoes. Uh, but around 3, uh, so 3:15 a.m., a policeman passed through Bucks Row on his beat. You know, because the policemen had these set routes that they that they would walk over and over and over again, usually um, passing the same way every uh, 15 to 30 minutes or so. Uh, but 3:15 a.m., the policeman passed through Bucks Row. No, nothing nothing unusual right uh 3:48 a.m. uh a man named Charles Cross uh discovered the body of Marianne Nichols in Buck's Row um and almost at that exact moment another man named Robert Paul came into Buck's Row and saw hmm. Charles Cross Standing over, you know, this woman lying in the street. And Charles Cross was basically like, you know, come over. There, there's this woman. Um, and they couldn't tell at first if she was just sleeping or drunk or dead, but then they know then they noticed that um her throat had been cut and right. blood was coming from her neck. They did notice that, uh, Her hands and face were cold, but her arms and legs were still warm and that Robert Paul thought that he that her heart was still beating very, Mm. very, very shallowly. Um, So they went off to find a policeman um, and came back and a doctor came about three fifty a.m. So 10 minutes after Charles Cross finds her um, a doctor arrives and pronounces Mary Ann Polly Nichols dead but that she's only been dead for a few minutes at the, at right. the most. Um, and it wasn't until they moved her body um, onto, onto the cart to take it to the mortuary that they saw that underneath her body, there is a huge, huge mass of congealed blood. Right. And that when they found out that she had also been mutilated um, mm. in the abdomen as well.
0: Right. That's right. So I remember saying that, you know, he, probably had put the dress down and displayed her like that so they wouldn't see it at first
1: possibly yeah yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah and I'm, her uh some of her wounds really differed and it seemed that she had been beaten before mm. now i don't think any of the other victims had that did they um or it was too hard to tell you
1: know, it, I mean, in I mean, of course, in some cases it's it was impossible to tell. Right. Um, but for for Marianne Nichols, um, they it was noted uh, in her autopsy report that uh, she had a bruise running down uh, the lower part of her jaw on the right side of her face, um, w- wounds which uh, which are consistent with manual strangulation.
0: Yeah. And
1: that her throat had been cut from left to right, uh, and those. That is pretty consistent um, from from Marion Nichols onward in terms of methodology, as far as we can tell from you know the autopsy reports that survive, uh, it right. is that it suggests that whoever the killer was, that he subdued her first by strangling her, mm. and then cut and then cut her throat. Um, which again, like, sort of when I talk about like especially if you include Martha Tabram, you can, I think you can see a killer learning is like, you know, Martha Tabram, her throat, her throat was not cut, you know, right. while her injuries were on the front of her body. Um, so it makes you want, it makes you wonder like, did the killer get blood on him? Yeah. You know, in that killer, in the, in that sense. So is that why from Marianne Nichols onward, you get the strangulation and the cutting the throat from left to right, cutting yeah. standing behind them so that the blood doesn't get on you um but again that's all that's all just hypothesis we don't know sure
0: for sure sure yeah and it's uh they talk about how there wasn't a lot of blood on the clothes like you said once they moved there then they find all this mm-hmm. congealed blood down there so i i think you're right is it he definitely had a different plan this time and when yeah, we and we oh go ahead go ahead josh
1: yeah, and again, and again, like the fact that they didn't notice the blood, like that the blood from her wounds, like was still underneath of her, like, uh, and the fact that she was bar- she had been dead only a few minutes, like, suggests that you know whoever killed Marianne Nichols killed her only a few minutes before Charles Cross and Robert Paul found her Right. Body. Um, and that's, that's something that I, that I, I think like didn't really stand out to me before. No, until I we, either started digging in, you know, cause we, I mean, we'll get to her, but like Elizabeth Stride, like we, you know, it's known that like, you know, that he was perhaps probably interrupted, you know, right. Uh, and, uh, but with Marianne Nichols, like it, it's clear that like it was a very recent crime. And again, like Bucks row is a place that there's not really anywhere to hide. So that's, that's just interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if he is, let's say bringing them somewhere, you know, for their services, then he has time to do this. And then does he take them out already beaten or abused and then just strangle them and, kill them there on the sidewalk, and I guess we'll never know. But mm-hmm. it, he, his, his MO definitely changes. It doesn't get less severe. It just changes, and it's sort of, you know, from being kind of methodical to just butchery. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which yeah. could we will also talk about that if maybe the Ripper killings didn't stop. Maybe mm-hmm. they did go on and became a whole separate section of killings that, you know, we'll talk about that later, mm-hmm. but yep. that was uh, August 31st, I believe in another bank holiday. Yes. I think it was three mm-hmm. weeks after Martha Tabram's correct. Mm-hmm. So now it brings us to Annie Chapman who actually had a, there's a lot of information about her life and there it's is. all quite tragic, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I, up on the uh, the Facebook site for the show, I put that up there because I'd, all you ever see are their post-mortem pictures. And here in, in your book, you know, you have pictures of a family picture with her husband and pictures of her children. And I just mm-hmm. it's just so sad that these lives get lost. So let me yes. shut up and let's let's talk about Annie Chapman.
1: Yeah. And and just brief and just briefly, though, um, those those uh, again, like, th- as you said, like the photographs of Aunt, that photograph of Annie Chapman we have mm-hmm. is the only photograph in existence we have of one of these victims where she's still alive. Right. Um, and that photograph of her and her husband and of their um, daughter, uh, Annie, uh, was discovered fairly recently, I think within the past decade, if I oh, remember wow. correctly by a researcher named Neil Sheldon um, who uh, was doing genealogy, uh, genealogy research into into these women like and trying to trace their families. And he got into contact with descendants of Annie Chapman. And one in particular uh, who agreed to meet with him in London, they, and I think they met at a, lo- at a library, if I remember correctly, um, and she brought some family photographs, and one was of her her um, ancestor Annie, uh, oh, wow. um, who was Annie Chapman's first daughter. Um, and but Neil Sheldon said he saw this other photograph in her hand of a woman and a man, and it turned out to be Annie Chapman and her wow. husband John. And this woman had no idea that. Yeah. Annie Chapman was Annie Chapman, who was killed by Jack, Jack the, the Ripper.
0: Ripper. Um, right,
1: and he actually t- was the one to tell her that, um, and she's the one who then gave permission for these photos to be to be shared, so we we can see her face when she's alive. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, oh god, Annie Chapman. Uh, yeah, there's so
0: much, and, uh, and all of it's and, bad.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Like she, she's the. the, I mean, I think her story is really hard to read and to and to take in because out of all all of the women, you know, that were killed by this man, she's kind of the one who fell the farthest in terms of like class and the and the life that she'd known. Um, but her like any Annie Chapman. First of all, um, her she was born as Annie Eliza Smith. Um. And we don't know her exact birth date. We know she was born in September in either 1840 or 1841. Most people seem to think 1841 is probably more likely. Um, But uh, her father, uh, who is a a former soldier named George Smith, after getting out of the army, entered domestic service um, and... When Annie was, if I remember, I think 16 years old, her father came home one day and cut his throat oh my um, god. at the dinner table in front of his wife. <laughs> oh and my children. god! Um, which, again, like it's one of those things you can't make up. Just a, a very like eerie, unsettling, you know, parallel. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's it's that it's bad enough as it was. Even if she had gone on to become successful, and that's a pretty terrible thing. Mm-hmm. But like you yeah. said, the the parallel of the two just intensifies it.
1: Yeah. Um. And Annie Chapman, at the time of her father's suicide, she she had already entered domestic service. At that time, she was the she was the oldest of of the children in the family. Um, and she married another servant named John Chapman, mm-hmm. and it's their wedding photograph. Um, oh, okay. That we that we have um, after their wedding, and it, it, again, this is a really I think interesting detail historically because during this time period, you know, if you're a servant, you are you are in most cases like it's part of your contract that you are not going to have any, what they call followers. You're not going to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You are not allowed to have a romantic relationship. Wow. Um, uh, And you're certain. And if you were allowed to have a romantic relationship, you most certainly were not allowed to get married and have children and keep your your job. Right. That was extremely rare. Um, But the fact that Annie and John did get married and did have children and kept working in service is real, really tells you, um, how high up they, they were, you know, within the, within the servant class that they were respected. They were trusted, um, that they were, I mean, it seems ridiculous to say, but proud right. the privilege, you know, yeah. uh, how, marriage and family, uh, sure you know, it sounds, it's disgusting now, but you uh, know, right. That's right. The way right. It was back then. Um, so they had they had um, two, they had, uh, two chil- they had two children. Um, their first child was a son um, who is said who is said to have been quote unquote born a cripple. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what um, his his physical issue issues were um it's known you know based on the records we have that he did need hospital care um a lot of modern scholars have speculated that uh he may part of uh, his problems may have been from fetal alcohol syndrome Oh um the same thing with their daughter emily um who who had a lot of health issues and their daughter, Emily actually died when she was 12 um, wow. in 1882. And, uh, and she's the one that we also have the photograph of the little right. girl, like kneeling by the desk. Um, mm. And it was after their daughter, their daughter, Emily died um, that both Annie and John sort of sank into alcoholism. Uh, and she was, uh, sometimes arrested for public drunkenness, but she was never charged with anything. Uh, And 1884, just two years after her daughter died um, or their daughter died, that's when Annie and John Chapman's marriage just basically fell apart. They didn't divorce um, because you know, they didn't do that back then. uh, Really. Uh, John Chapman retained custody of the two of the children Um, And it was then that Annie moved to Whitechapel. Um, And again, like Martha Tabram, like Marianne Nichols, uh, John Chapman paid Annie an allowance. He paid her 10 shillings a week, which was enough for her to live on. Uh, She also and, and she what she was not doing sex work by this time. The ten shillings was enough, and she also would sell flowers. She would do crochet work that she would sell for money. Okay. Um. So like she was living in white. She was living on her own in Whitechapel, but she, but she was, she was surviving. But then her husband John uh, died of cirrhosis of the liver on Christmas Day. Of in course. Um. And all Annie Chapman knew was that the allowance stopped coming and that was the money that she was living on. Right. And she traveled to the village where her husband lived and That was when she found out that he had died. Um, and that was kind of when in the last two years of her life, you know, when things really began to fall apart um, yeah. for her. Uh, that's when she began to drink more and more. Um, As far as we know, based on the record she has, she never saw her children again. Mm. Um, And uh, one of the, just a a side note, but something I think is uh, a fact that I think just makes it even more resonant is that like, you know, because we think of this of like, oh, this is so, so long ago, right? Right. Um, But Annie Chapman had a younger sister named Miriam and her younger sister Miriam died in nineteen
0: forty. Oh wow. See that that um, really kind of kind of puts a caveat on that. And it's like it does. 1888 seems. Well that's way
1: back then, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, in the last two years of her life is really when, you know, she descended into alcoholism and had to resort to sex work to survive. Um and there is a letter from uh, annie's younger brother fountain uh who he wrote to a minister um after annie chapman died where he wrote about um annie's struggle annie's struggle with alcohol you know and that it's just a heart-wrenching letter you right. know that he she knew um she knew she knew she had a problem but she she just knew that she couldn't she couldn't be without it, you know. And she she told her family like, "I won't bother you. I'll keep I'll keep away from you. But I but I have to have this. Um, yeah. You know. Which is. Uh, but she did. You know. Annie Chapman had a, a good friend named named Amelia Palmer. Um. And Amelia said of Annie like she was a very clever little woman, very respectable, never used bad language. Sober, steady woman who seldom took any drink, but she did have a taste for rum, and that since the death of her husband, she seemed to have given away altogether. Mm. Um, Like basically, like went into a deep, deep depression. Yeah. um, Why? uh, Her nickname amongst a lot of people who knew her in Whitechapel was Dark Annie, um, because of that. Um, And just she. Was in a, again was in a relationship with another man for a while. Um, and there was a, uh, another woman who was interested in the same man and the woman. Um, on uh, September 1st, 1888, this woman actually beat Annie Chapman up, punched her in oh. the face, punched her breasts, um, and said she wasn't feet. She ran into her friend Amelia on Tuesday, September 4th, and said she wasn't fe- she wasn't feeling well. Um, and Annie Chapman actually did go into the hospital oh, after wow. that, there for two days on September 5th and September 6th, 1888. Uh, and we know that for sure, um, because she, after those days, she was seen with a bottle of medicine and a box containing two pills. Um, but still on Friday, September 7th, her friend Amelia ran into Annie on, in Dorset Street. And Annie said to her, I feel ill to do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Amelia left, but then came back down the road about 10 minutes later and saw that Annie hadn't moved, that she was still standing, still in the same place. And Annie said, it's no use my giving way. I must pull myself together and go and get some money, or I shall have no lodgings. Mm. Um, And then this, so that's, uh, then the next we see if her is 11:30. Uh, uh, Annie Chapman returned to her lodging house um, and sat, asked permission to sit in the kitchen for a while. At 12:10 a.m. on what is now Saturday, September 8, 1888, um, she's still in the lo- she's still in the lodging house, um, and the night watchman comes to collect money for her bed, uh, and she doesn't she doesn't have any money. Right. Um, she- paid the 8 pence um double the price so she could have a bed to herself. Yeah. Um and she said and she said to the manager, you know, keep my bed for me, you know, I'll go I'll go find I'll go out and find money. Um and he's and he laughed at her and said, "You can find money for your beer, but you can't find money for your bed." Yeah. And he and in his testimony he said that she didn't answer him she just stood there in the doorway for two or three minutes just looking into the night and she said never mind i'll soon me back i won't be long hmm. see that Tim keeps the bed for me and then she walked into Whitechapel. chapel 5 30 a.m uh another woman saw annie chapman talking to a man in front of 29 hanbury street and She heard part of Annie Chapman's conversation with this man. She heard the man say, will you? And Annie Chapman replied, yes. Um, And it was was just a few few moments later that uh, a man who lived in the house next door at 27 Hanbury street went into the backyard to use the bathroom and he passed the fence that separated the backyard from 29 Hanbury street. And he heard voices behind the fence. He heard a woman say the word, no, then he heard something hitting the fence mm. and then he went to the bathroom and went to work. Um, and a half hour later at six o'clock AM that's when any Chapman's body was found.
0: Oh gosh. I mean, what a, uh, what a descent. Yeah. Anyway, you know, where else, where else can they go? You know, they get, they get stuck in alcoholism, which is a brutal, brutal disease. And then there's just nowhere to go, but down. Mm-hmm. And most mm-hmm. of them have lost everyone. She lost her husband. The husband took the kids. Then she lost one of the kids still. Yeah. And, uh. Yeah, that that moment of her just standing in the doorway, just looking out, yeah. and like after he says that, I, I can't imagine what's going through her head of it. And you're like, "Well, yeah, you're right, but what do you want me to do?"
1: Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sort of the final thing about her is that, like, in in the autopsy, and again and again with her, like, this is when you start to see, um much uh much more extensive mutilation of the body because again uh Marianne Nichols you know was found just a few minutes after you know uh she was killed but you know uh, based on the timeline we have that the killer had about a half an hour with her body right Uh, but in the autopsy um they found out by exam by examining her and examining her brain that she was likely suffering from advanced tuberculosis. Oh, um, right. And that she, she would not have had much longer to live anyway. Um, right. And one final thing from that autopsy report that I just really always hits me is that they, they concluded that she had no alcohol in her system at the time she died. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, it's just trying. You know, it's just trying to get by. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah.
0: And you wonder if these, you know, they're they're down to the last minute. They need a place to stay. I assume they have those clients mm. that they probably wouldn't normally go back to, but yeah, you know, they could know that maybe they're violent. You know. I I don't know. If, I'm sure it's been discussed. If maybe some of them actually knew the man who killed them, and it makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I I definitely talk about that in the in the book. And it's something that a lot of historians have sort of realized is that uh, all all of these women had connections to a very very very. Um, pinpointed geographic location in Whitechapel. Um, and it makes, it makes a lot of people wonder if this man was someone that they all knew. Um, right. And perhaps trusted. Cause I think that, you know, that's an important thing too. Like if you're, if you are talking about who, who this person was that committed these crimes, you know, cause yeah, they're like you mentioned earlier, there's like the real exotic, theories about sure. you know, oh, it was Prince Albert Victor. Uh, oh it was right. James Holmes. Oh, it was Lewis Carroll. <laughs> oh, know? I remember yes, um, I remember that one like, as well. And, and none of I mean, there are many reasons why none of those are true and they don't make sense. Right. But uh the thing that is most important and I think is most important to remember if you are going to go down the path of like trying to investigate and theorize who this person might have been. Is that it must have been someone who knew Whitechapel yes. intimately because you know Whitechapel like was a lot it was a maze it was a labyrinth yeah. of streets you know um, and this was a person who was seemingly able to appear and then vanish in set in seconds without anyone noticing him or seeing anyone strange like you know that stereotypical typical silhouette of Jack the Ripper, you know, with the like frock coat and the top hat and the cane. If if a man like that had been walking around Whitechapel in the middle of the night, people Everyone would, would know. remember it. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. Um I I really so I I really do think that it it just makes sense with all the evidence we have that this this was someone who lived in this neighborhood, who knew sure. it well, someone that blended in that did not stand out that no one would think twice about seeing in these locations. And, you know, you take that and go where you will with it.
0: Yeah. I think one of the, the next big things that came not directly from Annie Chapman, but post Annie Chapman was the arrival of the dear boss letter.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So,
0: and that came into, uh, I have it here, uh, September 27th, 1888, to london central news agency and they get this letter it looks like it could have been written in blood and uh i think i have it yeah dear boss i keep on hearing the police have caught me but they can't but they won't fix me just yet i've laughed when they look so clever and talked about being on the right track that joke about leather apron gave me real fits I'm down on hordes, and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work, the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write about it, but it went thick like glue, and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha-ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers, just for the jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back until I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away, if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before... I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it! No luck yet, but they say I'm a doctor. Ha ha! So the dear boss letter. Now I believe there is a lot of speculation that this was made up by the press.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty much. I think I I think for for most scholars anyway, absolutely certain that this was a hoax. Yeah. Um. The, the again, the three lead investigators on the the case of the Whitechapel murders actually um believed they tracked down the name of the newspaper person who mm. did it. Um and I the name escapes me, but there was there was someone who, uh, like a decade or two later, later confessed to being the person oh. who wrote
0: it. Oh wow, um, no, I didn't hear that.
1: But I can't I can't remember the person's name and, you know, who knows if that's true or not, you know. Right. Um but <clears throat> But I mean, so it's probably likely a hoax, you know, but by giving, by inventing that name, Jack the Ripper, you know, uh, uh, in a very dark way, you know, whoever, whoever wrote this letter, whoever made, you know, made this hoax, made up that name. I I, I really think we have them to thank for the fact that we are still talking about this and still talking about these women now. Um, because the, a killer taking on a, a, a name like that had never happened before. That was right. not a thing. Um, and it's just like I, I write in the book, like it's three perfectly chosen words because Jack could be anybody such a common name. Anyone could be Jack. Right. And then that coupled For with sure. the Ripper which yeah. is so vivid and visceral, you know, and night and nightmarish. Yeah, like that really that na- that name, Jack the Ripper, is really what gave this case its immortality Um, for bet for better and for worse.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh that started it all. And now it's now it's synonymous, you know, and it's become this sort of mm-hmm. legend and. And it's taken on its own life, and it's uh, I guess that's why we really want to find who it is. We want it's become this almost morbid cartoon character uh-huh. out there, and it's just come on, we we want to know if it's a cart driver or if it's just you know a former barber with syphilis or you know who mm-hmm. could this have been? And like mm-hmm. you said, it has to be somebody that was there because he always has time until one where he's interrupted, but he knows kind of where to be until the the impulses seem to be getting more and more frequent and more and more violent. Mm -hmm. But uh, so next is Elizabeth Stride.
1: Yeah, um, and Elizabeth Stride is... Uh, I think she's probably in, in doing the research for the podcast and for this book, like she was the person who I, I feel I, I learned the most about that. I didn't, that I didn't know, you know, cause I, I feel like Elizabeth stride is so often not, not really delved into much. Um, right. Because she is one of two women that were killed on the same night, you know, which was, called the double event, uh, in, in another further letter. Um, but, and that she, you know, had her throat cut, but had no other in, had no other injuries, whereas the injuries to the next victim that night were absolutely horrific. Um, but yeah, like, but there's so much in the historical record about her. Um, and she, she was born, uh, Elizabeth Gustav Datter, on uh Mm -hmm. in sweden um november 27th 1843 so when she was born um and the swedish spelling of her name is actually elizabeth with an s oh Um, yes we anglicize it to elizabeth with a z but she was born elizabeth with an s um and she uh growing growing up in uh the town of gothenburg In uh um, excuse me um she grew up in torslanda um Mm. north of the city of gothenburg in sweden And uh, the little we know about her childhood and early life is really about her religious instruction. She was a devout Catholic, Mm -hmm. um, attended Sunday school services. She was confirmed as a Catholic. Um, And when she uh, was 16 years old uh, or 17 years old uh, in 1860, uh, she moved to the city of Gothenburg uh and for a time, for a time, we don't know much about her life, uh, but we know by 1861, uh, she, like uh the other one before her uh was employed in domestic service as a maid in a very nice respectable household. Um, but she was uh, fired in 1864. We don't know why. Um, we don't know hmm. exactly the reason why. But she was, she was let go from her job. And right around the time that she lost her job, her mother died. And right. she, a month after her mother died, Elizabeth found out that she was pregnant. Um, hmm. And she went into she went into the hospital. Um. She was she was considered homeless at this point Um. where she was uh, diagnosed with genital warts. Oh my uh, gosh! Uh, yeah, uh, and also and also primary syphilis. She received medical treatment for both for both of those conditions. Um, she gave birth to her uh, child. Uh, it was a girl that was stillborn. Mm. Um, it was by eighteen, and again, we have no idea what the circumstances right. were of how Elizabeth got pregnant, who the father was. We don't know. You know what was it? Someone in the household sure. that she worked in. I wonder, but sure. You know. um yeah. But it was after after she was released from the hospital finally in uh, 1865 um, that she was arrested arrested by police um, for being a sex worker, and in the official police records of Sweden, it lists her as a professional prostitute, mm. um, and then. In November of 1865, Elizabeth started working as a maid, um, for a woman, for a woman named Maria, um, and the record showed that this woman, Maria, actually employed a very huge number of maids, uh, which makes people think that she was actually running a brothel. Brothel, right, that makes sense. We don't know. but because of the inheritance that Elizabeth got from her mother, it was enough for her to be able to leave Sweden uh, and immigrate to England. Um, and she arrived in England in 1866. Um, mm. Never she never returned to Sweden again. Uh, and we don't the next couple of years we don't have any information on her. But in 1869, Elizabeth married a carpenter named John Stride. And this is one of those details that I think most people don't know. And I think is so, so important in recognizing the humanity of these women. Yeah. So after Elizabeth and John Stry got married, they opened a coffee shop together yeah. and it was hugely successful and so successful that they actually moved to a larger building. Um, but in 1875, they sold the, they sold the coffee shop, um, Hmm. And we don't know why we don't know why they did. Um, But I I just, you know, I think that's something that I never see talk talked about when people speak about Elizabeth Stride that like, no, like she wasn't just like, you know, practicing sex work all this time. Like, no, she got married and like she and her husband had a a successful business, you know, years Um, and it was and where things started to go wrong for Elizabeth again in England after things going right for such a long time. Uh, Again, again, so many parallels with all of them. Um, Elizabeth's husband, John Stride got sick uh, and he was sick for years and we don't exactly know um, what, what his illness was, Um, but he died in 1884 Mm. and, um, that that's really when elizabeth started again uh with the pad she started drinking much more heavily right. um and you know practicing sex work to survive and uh living living in the DOS houses when she could um she often uh told a story to people that uh, her husband and all her children had died in this uh, terrible um, disaster on a, on a ship and she, she had survived. Um, and she told that story over and over to so many people. And that the re- and that, that was why she um, all the teeth in her lower left jaw were gone. Mm. She was kicked in the face, trying to climb right. onto the mast of the ship to survive. Ugh. And all that was a lie. None yeah. of that is true. Um, but you know, I I think it's so it's so poignant, you know, that she, even with her life the way it was, like trying trying to hide it, trying to create sure a better a better story, you know, like this is this is why I am in the place I am yeah. now. You know, that's why all these teeth are gone. It's not, it's not because they rotted because I drank so much. Right. You know? Um,
0: and this whole time, had- oh, I'm sorry, Josh. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, I, and then all this time, you know, she has tertiary syphilis. Now yeah. I think in November uh, she had gotten a clean bill of health, but that could just mean it went in remission. True. Mm-hmm. So that could, that could come up later in the
1: story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and in the last in the last couple of years of her life, she she was in a relationship, did find love with another man, a man mm. with, with a, a uh, it, with the macabre name in hindsight of mm. Michael Kidney.
0: Right. Um, mm.
1: uh, and but their, rela- their relationship, it it, it is c- pretty clear that they loved each other very much. Mm hmm. But again, because of the alcoholism, there was there was a lot of physical abuse going on. Elizabeth actually did formally charge Michael Kidney with assault and domestic violence, but mm-hmm. she didn't show up in court. And again, remembering the time the time period, you know, um, people didn't really care, you yeah. know, in about about women in this sense. Um, so that really, uh, she and she and Michael Kidney broke up for good on September 25th, 1888. Um, shortly after that uh, year, after that court case happened, um, and by by this time, when she and Michael Kidney finally break up, um, we're now at the point where Martha Tabram, Marianne Nichols, and Annie Chapman have all been killed, um, and.
0: And that is exactly when my boiler came on and made a giant ruckus and no one could hear anything and had to pause the show. But we have, I figured this is a good spot to end Part 1. So just jump on over to Part 2 for the continuation and uh, hope you're enjoying this great talk and interview with Josh Hutchins. And we'll have him back on again soon and i'll see you on the other side what are you still doing here go listen to part two